Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary, the uh, Luke 17 episode. It's so good to be here back in the studio again. Uh, this is kind of a goofy day for me. My car is in the shop, so I'm awaiting hopefully good news. You know, I'm always hoping that one day they'll open the engine up and there'll just be like uh, uh, gold coins or something, lost treasure. But uh, we'll see what happens today. Uh, so I'm in here in the studio, excited to record an episode, and uh, let's do this. Jungle Life. I'm far away from nowhere on my own, like Tarzan boy. Hide and seek. I play along while rushing across the forest. Monkey business on a sunny afternoon. That was for you, Matt. I don't know if you listen to this podcast, but that was for you. Anyway, welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary, your Bible podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. Uh, I'm Kevin Lester, and uh, I'm excited to do this. Uh, For those of you who may be tuning in for one of our first times, um, I created this podcast for friends and other people I know who... um, maybe aren't interested in never, for, for various reasons, uh, never going to a church again. Um, or even for the first time, maybe it's too intimidating too much. Maybe they've experienced some trauma in the church or something like that. But I keep running into people who are really curious and interested in who God is or might be, or who Christians believe that God is or what the Bible says that God is, you know, or who are interested in, in Jesus, but maybe not interested in religion in that kind of way. And, uh, for a lot of those people, I found that they had a hard time really getting into it because other than buying like those weird like Newsweek Time Life magazines they sell at the grocery store, it's kind of hard to really figure out how to get into understanding the Bible or even reading it at all, whether you try and get a big understanding of it or not. And so I made this podcast where we just go uh, chapter by chapter, story by story through uh, parts of the Bible, and we're going to try and look at them as a story. So if we're reading a story, we're going to read it like a story. We're not going to jump right to, you know, interpretive questions about what does this text mean or what do we need to do in response or what's the big theology attached to it, really. Um, We're just going to read it as a story and pretend that everyone in it is a character in a story and see what the story is trying to tell us about those characters. And then you can decide in the future whether or not you think those characters are real or if you agree with how the story portrays people or God or characters or things like that. Um, So it's been a lot of fun, and we are in Luke 17. We're going to jump right on in. Let's do it. Jesus said to his disciples, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. So uh, that's our first little piece. Uh, We get this little teaching piece where Jesus is turning. Uh, If you were here for Luke 16, he tells some parables. He's kind of uh, has a little bit of a back and forth with some Pharisees and some religious leaders. But here uh, it's specifically noted by Luke that this is a teaching to the disciples. And uh, we get this thing about stumbling. Woe to anyone by who you know who makes someone stumble. Stumble is a is a is kind of a code word at the time, um, a, a folksy way of saying like if you if you lead someone down a path where they do something bad, where they sin, where they where they commit an offense. Um, so don't 
lead people down a bad path. And if you do, that's bad. And if you do, it'd be better for you for a millstone to be hung around your neck than for you to be thrown into the sea. So a millstone in this case, um, if in this context is the, like the community millstone, which is like a giant um, stone they used to grind grain in a flower. And it would be huge and gigantic. It would be like one of the biggest things like in their community. And uh, it would be very heavy because it's for grinding things. Um, and it would be better for that to be tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Now, whenever they talk about the sea in ancient um, uh, Near Eastern culture, um, the sea is often portrayed as like a folksy like uh, substitute for anything that is chaotic and scary and evil. So much like I feel about the ocean after seeing the movie Jaws, um, people back then, I mean, they didn't have submarines, they didn't have cameras, they didn't know what was under the water, you know what I mean? Um, so they just knew that the sea was a, a kind of a frightening place and therefore in their cultures in a lot of their literature it took upon like as being a stand-in for a place of chaos and so jesus is here like it would be better for you to have the heaviest stone in the community tied around your neck as an anchor and for you to be thrown into a place of chaos than for you to make one of these little ones stumble now if you listen to the last episode on luke 16 you've gotten a very similar picture of um the rich man um ignoring Lazarus, this poor man at his door and him being thrown into a, a, a place of chaos with a chasm between them and, and a good place where they can't get out of. Um, so it's much like being anchored and thrown into the sea here. So it's kind of building off the previous imagery. Um, and so we have to think of what does Jesus mean by the little ones? Well, he's talking specifically to the disciples. So some people, when they read this, they're like, oh, well, Jesus is talking about, okay, don't make one of the other disciples, someone else who's trying to follow Jesus and live good and live according to his way in the world. Um, don't lead them down a bad path. Don't make them stumble. It could also be because the imagery connects with the imagery from the last story that Jesus is talking about um, little ones as being those who are poor or needy or who are low on the social status. Like he could be like little ones as it like analogous to Lazarus in the parable. So Jesus is saying like, okay, if you, if you make people who are in need um, stumble, then that's really bad for you. You know, um, so, so it's, it's kind of, he gives a warning first and then he says, be on your guard to kind of punctuate that warning. Um, and then he says, um, he has this little then excuses about how disciples are supposed to treat each other. Um, so if someone does something bad, if they sin, you're supposed to go and, and point it out to them. So to rebuke them, you know, um, and Jesus says, you must rebuke the offender. And in, in their custom of the day, it was, it was, thought that the best way to do that was to go to someone personally. Imagine that if, if we solved all of our interpersonal problems personally before like going to the public, um, you went to them personally first to say, Hey, that's, that's not okay. Um, and then Jesus says, if they repent, if they promise, you know, if they, if they decide that if they agree, yes, it was wrong and I'm going to do differently, you know, um, repentance kind of involves some sort of promise to, to, to do different or to do better. Um, you must forgive them. And the word must is used three times in this, in this one little section, must rebuke, must forgive, must forgive. Jesus punctuates the forgiveness part of it. And then he says, if the same person sins against you seven times a day, you have to turn back to them seven times and say, I forgive you. Um, so, um, remember, uh, I think we've talked about this before in the podcast, the number seven in their culture is a, uh, considered a number of completion. Um, so for someone to sin again, seven times in one day, that means they just keep doing it. They do nothing else, but do this thing. Um, you know, so if I gave you, um, 
if I gave you $7 in their culture, that would be like, oh, that's enough money for, for what I need. You know what I mean? Like it was seven considered like, like a, yeah, a number of completion or enoughness or something like that. Um, in the same way that we always round everything to five and 10, like they would round everything to seven, you know? So, um, so in this situation, this hypothetical situation, this person does nothing but continually doing the wrong thing and continuing saying that they're sorry and promising that they'll change. And you, he says, the impetus is on you to seven times also forgiving them. So it's this kind of radical um, kind of concept of repentance that that also follows with a radical call towards mercy. Um, so... Um, I mean, if usually repentance involved a promise for, for, for change of their behavior here, Jesus is saying, okay, even if they never follow through on their change of behavior, or even if you never follow through as the offender, go back and apologize. You know, even if you just can't change, go back and apologize, repent. And those of you who are being repented too, um, even if they don't change their behavior, you're supposed to forgive them. Um, and maybe I wonder, this is what enables Jesus to kind of befriend currently active, quote unquote, sinners over like the religious successful elites who do have all the right behaviors, but their hearts are far away from it. You know what I mean? Um, and so, um, yeah, so Jesus commands his followers to forgive every time. And so this is interesting that Jesus gives this teaching immediately following kind of a judgmental passage where he says, okay, if you cause people to stumble, it would be better for you if a millstone were around your neck than for you to hurt one of these little people and lead them the wrong way. And it also immediately follows the story from 16 of um, the rich man and Lazarus, which is kind of a stark image of this afterlife, you know, painted picture where some people, you know, specifically the rich man goes to a place of torment. And so you can read that story and be like, oh my gosh, the, the judgment is harsh. I have to get all my behaviors right or something like that. And here Jesus, as he almost always does. I'm, I'm always reluctant to say always because I need to actually go through and, and see if, if it's always 100%. But whenever Jesus gives a teaching where he portrays God or the world as being very judgmental towards you, or he talks about, um, you know, there being serious consequences for, for, for your mistakes or something like that, he always follows it with a, a radical teaching about the mercy that we are supposed to show each other or that his followers are supposed to show each other, because we're staying in the story here. Sorry, I'm getting better at that. Um, and then the mercy that he believes that God shows towards us. Because remember, Jesus's ethic of how we're supposed to live is always built on what he thinks God's character is, or what he is willing to show other people as well himself. Um, so if, if, if you got shaken, if his followers were shaken by these two teachings back to back about some pretty harsh judgment and some be on your guard kind of stuff, he also then follows it with, there's mercy that comes even if the behavior never changes, as long as people repent. So it's kind of interesting. Um, and that's maybe a device that Luke is using, that every time he wants to, he gives these stories about Jesus teaching some pretty harsh stories, he always then positions a story about the greater mercy of Jesus over it, which is just kind of interesting. Let's go ahead and continue on in the story. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave, who has just come in from plowing and tending the sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? 
Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, We are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. So here's the next little passage. Um, uh, Jesus, it starts off with the disciples. The you know They're called the apostles here, like the sent ones, the messengers, the people who carry his message, um, saying to the Lord, increase our faith. Um, and Jesus responds with the mustard seed story. Um, now a mustard seed um, in their culture, if you've never seen one, would be a seed that was proverbially small, like so small that was used as an example of something small. Um, uh, so it's an icon of smallness. And yet a mulberry tree, in contrast, is this tree um, that uh, had this root system that was so thorough and complicated that it was really hard to pull out. So for an agricultural culture, um, Jesus is here like using images that they would understand. So he's like, okay, if, if you had this faith the size of a mustard seed, you could take out a mulberry tree. Like, so you could, you could just command with just your words, uh, a really hard to pull out tree to just uproot itself and go be planted in the sea. Um, so again, in the sea, which is, you know, place of chaos. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and so Jesus is here commenting, they've asked for more and more faith. And Jesus is like, oh, well, the faith required to do the work isn't much. Like you're not being asked to have a lot of faith. You just need to have a little bit. And so um, as we go forward, something to keep in mind, um, the stories in 17 and 18 play on this imagery of things that are small and things that are big a lot. And it kind of starts with this parable or things that are far away and things that are really close, things that are on the ground, things that are high up. Um, those image kinds of images are really popular in Luke and it's only going to get really, really um, blatant and interesting um, over the next few stories. So watch how Jesus reacts to things that are small. Um, and so Jesus's claim here just to the, to the apostles, though, the disciples, is, hey guys, you, don't worry about getting more faith. It's not about you and how big and grand your faith is. And then he follows it up with this it, with this little imagery about servants and, and slaves. So it's like, it's, it's not about your faith. It's about the work and action that you do. Um, so slaves and servants, um, in Greek, that word is the same thing. So it's always kind of tricky if Jesus is mentioning particularly people who are enslaved or people who are just like household servants. It's tricky. Um, but they did work in the field and then they would go in and do housework after the field work was done. Like you didn't, if, unless you were extravagantly wealthy, you didn't have slaves for, for both outside and inside, you know what I mean? So during the daytime, they would go out and do the work in the field and then they would come in and prepare the, the supper for the, for the master's family. Um, and uh, again, if you're uncomfortable with slave imagery in the Bible, I understand I'm uncomfortable with it too. Um, uh, but here Jesus is saying like, okay, if, if you guys remember that you guys are servants, like you just, just keep focusing on doing the work. Don't focus on asking for more. Don't focus on asking for some sort of reward for it. Focus on just keep doing the work as best you can, if that makes sense. Um uh, and, and from Jesus's point of view, the more you do the work, like the growth in your faith kind of like comes naturally as an outcoming of that. So again, it's, it's kind of a teaching here where he's kind of laying out to the apostles. It's not your job to be great. It's, it's like, keep your humility, like stay humble. You don't need to have much. Just keep going out and serving others. Like in the end, it's punched in with that. We are worthless slaves. We have only done what we have ought to be done. It's not about getting more for us. It's about just doing the work that Jesus is telling them to go do in the world. Um, Cool. Let's go ahead and continue on in the story. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village and 10 lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, 
they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. So here we go. Um, Jesus is kind of on his way. He's, he's in a long procession in the book of Luke to Jerusalem. He's already turned his way there. And as he's journeying, he's on the way and he's traveling through the region between Samaria and Galilee. So Galilee was, a, was a, an Israelite territory, but it was kind of separated from the, from the main um, body of the country um, by this area called Samaria. If you're joining us for the first time, Samaria was um, a community of people that had broken off from Israel a long, long time ago. And there's kind of a, a feud between them and the the, the rest of Israel um, that's been going on for a long time. People from Israel would, would intentionally journey around Samaria to avoid it because they just didn't like Samaritans. They viewed them as, as kind of um, ethnically not clean, um, not, not pure-blooded in that kind of way. But then also they, they didn't like them because they worshipped God the wrong way and had some different theological beliefs and had a, a splinter, like, worshipping center away from Jerusalem, stuff like that. And there is also, like, violent actions between Samaria and the rest of Israel. It's an ongoing feud. Um, and so they have this ongoing enmity between them. But Jesus is going right on through, going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. He's not avoiding it. We've seen Jesus do this before. And uh, as he goes through, um, he meets a pack of lepers. And so there's this traveling pack of lepers. And if you were, again, if you were a leper in society, if you had that kind of illness that was visible, um, it meant that you were constantly ceremonially unclean. You could not go to church and worship with the rest of the people. And it was your job to keep yourself from the rest of the community so as not to spread your disease. Like the impetus was on you. So you were quarantined from society. And so that is, is an interesting note, and we get it that Luke says that they kept their distance. And again, this distance thing is going to show up over these next few stories, so take note of that. But keeping their distance, they don't dare to get close to Jesus and his group, but while they're traveling through, they get close enough, and then they call out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Um, now, one thing we end up learning about this pack of, of, um, <laughs> this pa- this pack of lepers is that one of them, at least, is a Samaritan. So they're like this mixed inter-ethnic pack of quarantined people. And so what's interesting in the story, just to point out, is that um, it's a group of outcasts. And because of the desperateness of their situation, and because they're all kicked out of the regular part of society, they aren't choosy about who they keep company with. Like their illness has humbled them so much that Samaritan or Israelite, we're all together because we're all sick. And so we're just going to travel and stick in a pack. So they... Um, have a kind of radical inclusiveness that mirrors the kind of community that Jesus is going to build because of their illness, which is just kind of interesting. So um, Jesus sees them and he has, he does have mercy on them. Go and show yourselves to the priests. So show yourselves to the, to the, to the, to the, to the temple figures in whatever town you're from. Um, so that way they can pronounce you ceremonial clean so you can rejoin society. So Jesus doesn't just heal them physically. He, he reintegrates them into the community that they've been ousted from. 
Um, and so being made clean was a ceremonial term of a healing of disease. Now they can go back home. Um, and on their way, one of them sees that he was healed. And only one of them turns back. They praise God with a loud voice um, in the same way that they called out to Jesus. Now he's praising God. And he goes back. He, he puts himself at Jesus's feet. So he gets on the ground, which is a code term in the book of Luke, as we've seen, and thanks him. And Jesus um, is like, oh, this, this, is, this is great. I mean, 10 of these people were made clean, but where, where are the other nine? Like, they've all received the favor from Jesus, but only one of them has the best response. Um, and so Jesus says, was none of them found to return and praise God except for this foreigner? So again, Jesus calls out and celebrates good things wherever he sees them. And as we've seen him done before, in the book of Luke, Luke intentionally characterizes Jesus as being uh, someone who is almost more quick to praise the faith of people who are outsiders when it's found among them than the people who are found with faith who are kind of like insiders. Like he particularly praises them and lifts them up. So this guy comes back to praise Jesus and Jesus in turn praises this guy. And the person he praises is a Samaritan and a leper which is just really, really interesting. Um, So all of them kind of receive the healing, but only one of them kind of returns to enter into this relationship that's based on like gratitude and humility because he's at Jesus' feet. Um, And everyone on the ground does well in the book of Luke. And uh, it's really interesting. So whereas he's kind of criticized the faith of his disciples, uh, you know, they ask for more faith and he's like, oh, come on, guys, like you don't need more. And in previous chapters recently, he's been like, oh, if only you had a little bit of faith and stuff like that. Here he's praising the tiny little faith, the mustard seed of faith, just enough to say thank you that he finds inside of the Samaritan. Really interesting. Um, let's continue on in the story. Once, so here we go. So the setting is kind of changing. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. So real quick, because there's a lot going on and this is setting up the next big set of teaching. Let's, let's pause here. So the Pharisees come and so far we've seen Jesus have this weird relationship with the Pharisees where they're constantly criticizing him and mocking him and questioning him and challenging him. But here there's no setup where it's said like, oh, the Pharisees were grumbling about him or the Pharisees were against him or the Pharisees tried to trick him. It just says, once he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God is coming. So this could actually be Luke um, giving a good characterization to the Pharisees right here. Like this, because this could be a, a real genuine question. I mean, it could be a test, but it could also just be a real earnest question. They have. As Jesus was teaching around, if he was a traveling teacher, if you were a local person, you would go and listen to what they had to say. And then you would have, you know, question time, Q&A afterwards, where um, you could try and learn more from them or you could challenge them to kind of be like, nah, this guy's a false teacher. Let's 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 get him out of here, everyone. We need to protect ourselves from this person. We don't know kind of what side these Pharisees are leaning on, because usually Luke kind of clues us in if they have some shady business going on. Um, so let's for a moment just kind of play as if this is a genuine question. Um, once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming. Um, and their, so their question in their imagination, 
they were waiting for the kingdom of God to be established once again. And when they talk about the kingdom of God, if you have some kind of like heavenly, ethereal kind of concept of the kingdom of God, that's not what these people probably um, would have had at the time. And I would actually, you know, an interesting question is to say, maybe we shouldn't have that as well, but we'll dig into that later. Um, you know, like when is it going to come? They were waiting for the kingdom of Israel to be restored under Israelite rule, because that's how in the narrative of how they thought God was going to save the world. Like that was the first step. Like the first step was returning Israel to their own leadership. They're breaking away from Roman authority. So they're like, okay, Jesus, like when is the kingdom of God going to come? Like, how, how long do we have to wait? Um, and Jesus responds in this really interesting way. Um, he's like, no, but it's not through some sort of military conquest. It's not through, um, it's not even through things that you're going to be able to see. You know, it's not a, a new flag being raised. In fact, he says, the kingdom of God is already among you. It's not a future thing. It's it's a present thing. And Jesus could hear, some people interpret the story as like, Jesus is talking about himself, like, hey, the kingdom of God is among you. And maybe there's like a neon sign behind Jesus flashing an arrow pointing at him, you know? Or it could be that Jesus is like, oh no, like the kingdom of God is already here. It's just not what you think. It's it's something that transcends national nas- national lines or ethnic lines or or power or something like that. It's It's not something you wait for or you, you, you like strive for in that way, or you have to fight and win for it's, it's already here. And here Jesus has already healed 10, you know, lepers and he's crossed ethnic lines, you know, like he's healed Samaritans and stuff like that too, in that story, um, to restore folks, to bring the favor and goodness of God to them. He's already kind of just brought the kingdom to them. Like it's already among them. Like it's already happening. And here there's a group of people who are supposed to, who know more about the scripture, know more about the religion and the faith than, you know, you know the average person does. And Jesus is like, oh, no, no, no. You're looking, you're looking for a sign. You're looking for a visible thing. You're waiting for something to happen, but it's, it's already here. And you've been missing it. Don't miss it, you guys. Watch and listen and see it. That's kind of interesting. Um, now we're kind of set to go into the rest of this passage, which is it's, it's pretty tricky, but let's, let's, let's do our best. Then Jesus said to the disciples, so again, he's turning from one set of teaching to another, but in the same context. Then Jesus said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look here, or look there. Do not go, do not set off in pursuit, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But he first, but first he, the the Son of Man, must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. It will be like that on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. 
On that day, anyone on the housetop who has belongings in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, anyone in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Those who try to make their life secure will lose it. And those who lose their life will keep it. I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding meal together. One will be taken and the other left. They will be, and, and then they will ask, then they asked him, where Lord? And Jesus said to them, where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. Okay, this is the rest, of, this is the end of the chapter. And it's really tricky, but we'll try and, we'll, I'll try and do my best. Um, so Jesus gives some teaching to the disciples in reaction to the Pharisees question. When is the kingdom of God come? Jesus is like, oh, the kingdom of God is already here. And then he talks about, okay, like, like one day you're going to long to see the son of man. And son of man is kind of a code term. Um, it's been used for a prophetic figure, but it's also been used as, as a prophet's way of kind of pointing out himself. Um, so um, I think that's what Jesus is doing here. So you will long to see the days of the son of man and you won't see it anymore. Um, and a couple sentences later, he gives us a clue as to why, you know, first the son of man must endure much suffering and be rejected by his, ge- by this generation. So he's kind of, um, foretelling a little bit, um, what's going to proceed in just a few chapters when we get to the passion narrative, when Jesus is going to be arrested and tried and killed and dead, you know, it's thoroughly rejected by this generation, you know, and is going to endure suffering, but that's all part of the plan. Jesus seems to know that that's coming. Um, and so they're going to long to see him and they won't see him, you know, he won't be there anymore. Um, And so people are going to be looking for him or waiting for him for some sort of a return. Um, And they will say to you, look here, look there. And Jesus is like, you know what? Don't, don't get worked up in that. Like people as they are now are going to be looking for the Messiah. That's the heart of the Pharisees question. When is the kingdom of God going to come? Um, And like, look here, look there, caught up in a fervor about it. And Jesus' advice to his disciples is don't, don't even get caught up in it. Like they'll say to you, look here, look there. Don't go. Don't set off in pursuit. Don't get worked up. Don't get involved in the hoopla. And Jesus is like, for his lightning flashes and lights up the sky to one side to the other. So will the son of man be in his day? So he's like, when, 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 when the return is here, like when the culmination of history is happening, you're, you're going, it's going to be obvious. You're going to know. So, um, don't get caught up in watching for particular signs. You don't need to, to kind of wait for it or anticipate it. It's just going to kind of happen one day and it's going to be obvious. So don't get caught up in some sort of mystery or finding it. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and look here is, is, is some language he's used in previous discussion with Pharisees. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so he's kind of tying a multiple teachings together. Um, the kingdom of God won't go unnoticed. It's going to be like lightning. And again, it's not like a military conquest. It's, it's going to be more like lightning. It's going to be more like a, like a major cosmic event. And, it, and you don't have to go run off and set off in pursuit. It's not said so that it's not an, an overthrowing that you need to go join in on. It's, it's just going to happen. Um, and even all the other imageries that, that Jesus uses in this little passage for the son of man, it's lightning, flood, fire from heaven. You know, it's, it's going to be a big deal (laughs) and, and it doesn't really involve them (laughs) in that sense. Um, it's, it's a cosmic, like an event, like a natural disaster almost, um, or like lightning. Um, so Jesus then continues on. He, he, he predicts, you know, his death and his rejection. Um, and he says that this is all part of the plan. So, okay, you guys, you're going to see this happening. And, and remember, that's all part of it. Um, uh, we'll get to more of that in the next chapter because Jesus is going to dig into that further in 18. 
Um, and the problem um, is that the kingdom of God is here. And so the son of man's work is obvious, kind of like lightning or flood or like fire, but people are are going to miss it in the future and they're missing it now already. Because remember, Jesus is, has already told them, don't wait for something in the future. It's it's among you now. Because he's responding to that Pharisee's question. So um, he talks about the future, but it's also like, it, it's, it's, it kind of should be obvious now. He just healed 10 lepers. He's, he's raised little kids from the dead. He's, he's done all these amazing things. And if people don't see it now, they're probably not going to see it later. So maybe it's not about something you see or not. Um, again, that ties back to the last, uh, story with, um, the rich man, you know, wanting, you know, a sign, you know, from the afterlife to go and save his friends. And they're like, no, nah, if, if they get a sign, it's, it's, it's not about signs. They kind of already have enough. Then Jesus uses these 10 of two conflicting imagery, um, that are kind of interesting and kind of almost contradict a little bit, but let's, let's kind of pick them apart and see what we can do. So the image one, um, he talks about these floods and he talks about, um, the days of lot. So in, in the, in the book of Genesis, we get both of these stories, um, where, um, you know, the, the earth is going to be flooded and God wants to save Noah and his family. So he tells them, you know, go build a boat. So you're safe. So they, they build a boat and they get on it. And once they're on it, like floods come and, and everything on all on earth is just wiped out. Um, it's, it's not my favorite story. Um, but you know, everyone who, who was on the boat was safe. Um, so it's kind of like, you have to go get on that boat, you know? And then he tells the story of Lot. So Lot is in a town that's really wicked called Sodom and God is coming to judge it. And he wants to save Lot and his family. So like Noah, he told them, Noah gets told to go build and get on a boat. Lot is told, get out of town right now because the judgment is coming and don't look back. So Lot and his family are fleeing the town. They're leaving. And in the story, um, his wife turns around and looks back. Kind of, um, it's it's a code term for like, a, they're kind of reminiscing. They're kind of mourning the loss of their life in Sodom. And she is um, turned into a, a pile of salt which is interesting. So she experiences the same destruction as the town because she's kind of looking back and wanting that life back. Um, whereas they're just told to, to flee and to not look back, to just keep going on to, to salvation in a sense. Um, and, uh, so there's this idea of like, Jesus is telling the disciples, okay, you need to, you need to be ready to go. You know, when, when some, when things get bad, you got to get ready to go. Just like Noah and Lot's neighbors, a lot of people are just going to be kind of minding their own business and building and eating and drinking and planting and, and buying and selling and stuff like that. But, you know, Jesus is them, you know, is, you know, be on your guard, be, be ready, be looking for something more going on in the world. So that way you're ready for it. And so Jesus' advice to them is, oh, like you need to be like Noah and like Lot, don't, don't miss it when it happens. Don't get caught up in the, in the menial concerns, the material stuff of this, of this life in this world. So to the point that you miss the bigger things that are going on, um, because when it's here, be ready to go. There's like this language of leaving and it involves sacrifice because they have to leave something behind in order to go on towards something else. And so that's where Lot's wife kind of becomes the example of that. It's like, you got to sacrifice and give up everything to go and don't even look back. Um, and Jesus has already commanded his, his, uh, his disciples. He's warned them, if you follow me, you kind of got to give up everything. Um, then there's this imagery of the rooftop. Um, so uh, anyone on the housetop who has belongings in the house must not come down to take them away on that day, the day of the son of man. And likewise, anyone else in the field must not turn back. Um, so, uh, 
in, in their culture, like when you built a house, it was a, it was kind of a square blocky house and you had a rooftop upstairs and the stairs were outside the house. So if you were on the rooftop and you see the, the day of the son of man happening, this obvious event that's happening for everybody, you're supposed to just get out as soon as possible. You know, if, if something bad is coming, you, you leave. Um, and so they would climb down the stairs outside and Jesus is like the, the exaggerated lesson here is, don't then go back inside the bottom floor to get whatever you want. Just go down those outdoor stairs and just keep going. Like, like run, 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 run. Don't stop to go back inside. And this is going to become a, a big theme in the next chapter. So we're going to kind of tag onto that in Luke 18. Um, but for now, there's this imagery where Jesus is like, okay, when the day of the Son of Man comes, it's it might not be great, so great. It's going to be a big cosmic event. You need to be ready for it to leave. But then on the other hand, he then follows it with these other couple sentences about uh, but the imagery isn't you fleeing, it's people being taken. Um, and those who try to save their life will lose it. Those who try to lose their life will say, I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed and one will be taken and the other left. And there'll be two women grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of popular um, Christian religious uh, imagery and art and books and movies and stuff like that, they interpret the being taken as people being taken to be saved. And at least in right here, Jesus is not using being taken as a good thing. Um, they're not being taken to something good. People are being taken to either judgment or destruction. So again, they're like, oh, where are they going to go, Lord? And Jesus is like, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Um, so when, when, when military conquest did happen, they would pile up those bodies of everyone who was slaughtered and there would be this big garbage dump um, where all the vultures would gather and all the corpses would lay. And so the imagery here is um, not a happy one. You do not want to be taken. You want to be left in the house or at the grinding wheel together. Um, so there's kind of these two conflicting images of one. It's like, Oh, be ready. You need to go somewhere else. Whereas the other one is like, Oh, be ready. You'd rather be left here. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but in both images, there is a sense of being ready for something, um, kind of rising above like the, the, the eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, um, that was going on, um, amongst people who were not ready, like who, who that's what their life was all about. Um, and so this mix of, of good and, and bad imagery, some people flee to be saved and some people are taken to judgment, <laughs> uh, which is not good. Um, but there's a sense of being ready for and looking for and being aware of the kingdom of God that's happening in their midst right now that leads to what their kind of ultimate end might be. Um, and, and that's kind of tricky. Um, and it's not happy to think about and stuff like that, but Jesus kind of gets real with his disciples here of being like, Hey, people are going to get involved in a bunch of religious hoopla and don't get sidetracked by that to the point where you lose focus on what I'm really doing in the world and how you're invited to be a part of it. And in fact, um, don't get caught up in the hoopla to the point where, uh, you're, you're kind of led astray you know, where you're being led to stumble again. Um, because when it happens, it's, it's going to be obvious. So look for the things that are obvious. Don't look for mysteries and clues. You know what I mean? And at the same time, don't get caught up in religious hoopla, but also don't get caught up in the menial, like opposite side where it's like, don't get caught up in just kind of the everyday, like we're just living our lives. And, and that's kind of it. That's all there is to going on in the world. Be aware of the bigger things that are going on in the world, such that if a time comes where you have to leave, 
or if a time comes where you're called to stay, or if you, whatever the proper response is to the revealing of the kingdom of God and the revealing of the Son of Man, that you're ready for it. And that readiness isn't so much about doing a particular thing in the future, it's about doing the right thing every day right now, is how Jesus is kind of characterizing it here, because it's the king, it's not the kingdom of God coming up in the future, although there's some kind of finishing or closing to it coming in the future. It's among you right now, which is kind of interesting. And that's kind of the end of the chapter. This is a short one. Um, We'll go ahead and dig into our lo-fi in a, in a couple of questions after I take a drink. But yeah, if you're kind of left being like, yeah, Kevin, I'm still kind of perplexed about this chapter. Don't worry about it. Um, so am I. It's it's tricky stuff. And whenever the Bible gets into apocalyptic kind of stuff, it's always really hard because there's lots of imagery involved and the imagery often has contract, contrasting images and points and themes and stuff like that. And it's not really made for us to take a direct practical lesson from. It's kind of not supposed to be obvious. It's something you're supposed to mull over for a while. And that's okay. So um, let's uh, let's go ahead and continue on with our lo-fi questions. And again, in asking these lo-fi questions, we're not trying to get at so much what the text means. So it's just we're looking at character portrayal. So um, what is God like? So we get Jesus talking about... Um, we Actually, in this chapter, we don't. We don't really get Jesus talking about God so much more actually just talking about himself. And remember that in the book of Luke, um, Luke portrays Jesus as the son of God, someone who seems to be in some sort of understanding of himself as a divine figure. Um, and you'll have to decide whether that's a pill you're going to swallow or not, you know, like at a certain point, um, you know, religiously, but looking at, so, but looking at it as a story, we do have to deal with that in mind. So when we ask the question, what is God like in this chapter, we can kind of actually look at what does Jesus do? What does he like? What does he say? What does he seem to believe and think about things? And so from Jesus, we get, um, what is God like? God living with God and God's look on the world and God's action in the world seems to have a mix of both grace, like forgiveness, mercy, and judgment, like allowing things to experience consequences for their actions or responding in a serious and real way towards people's bad things that they do. Um, so you can't say that Jesus doesn't take sin seriously, you know? And so therefore Luke is giving us a vision of God that does take sin seriously um, because at the beginning of the chapter, we get him warning people, it would be better for you to have an anchor tied around your neck and thrown into the pit of chaos, into the ocean, than for you to make one of these little ones stumble, than for you to teach them wrong, than for you to lead them down a path, than for you to trick them or take from them. Um, it seems like he, Jesus takes that very seriously. And whether Jesus is talking about, you know, okay, your your, your fellow followers, like your fellow people in the world, or whether he's talking about people who are already vulnerable economically, socially, physically, something like that. He takes that very seriously. If you cause one of them to stumble, it's that's not good for you. There's consequences that come with that. And yet then he immediately follows it up with this offer and this teaching about how we are all supposed to live, where we offer tremendous and continual and complete mercy towards others who do wrong that even if they never change their behavior, there's mercy always offered for them. And if 
when Jesus teaches ethics of how people are supposed to live towards each other, if that is rooted in his idea of his belief about what God, his father, or God like himself as the son of God are really like, then that means that there's tremendous mercy being ready to be offered. So as people who might be reading this question to figure out what God is like, at least according to Luke, Luke seems to be like, okay, yeah, in God, there's a mix in his behavior and in his character of both being merciful and of being judgmental. And a question that we might have as his readers or he might have as a writer is, well, what's the mix? What's the ratio of mercy to judgment that we can expect from God? And in this story, Jesus is like, oh, like the the overwhelming side is the mercy side because there's always more of it. The mercy is complete because it comes seven times even if you never change. So for those who are humble, for those who who, who get on the ground in the book of Luke, that's a, a, a term he uses often, for those who ask and repent. That's why Jesus thinks to think that repentance is so important. Repentance can overcome and overshadow all of the bad behavior that even continues on. And Jesus says, you must, twice, must forgive. And so we might ask the question of, is Luke presenting us with a vision of God where because of who God is, God must forgive. Always. Interesting. Um, What else is God like in this chapter? God loves humbleness and humility and rewards it and celebrates it wherever he sees it. So again, these little ones, like protect the little people, the humble people, the lowly people. Like um, if you only had my disciples a little faith, like, and just acknowledge that your faith was little, you could go on to do great work. If you were kind of satisfied, almost in a sense, with the little amount of faith you could have. Like people who repent are rewarded. Like they have to show some sort of humility and humbleness. Like the Samaritan comes back and and at first they keep their distance, which is a sign of humility and humbleness. And then he comes down and lays at Jesus' feet, which is again, a sign of great uh, humility and showing honor to somewhere else and showing your loneliness to yourself. And in the book of Luke and in this chapter, God seems to have this idea that the real good in the world is found in and can be done by people who start low or who stay low or who go low. And he seems to like love and honor humility on the part of other people and not like loving, like Jesus never seems to drive people into the ground, but people that kind of choose it in the world. Like he's like, Oh, like here we found faith. Here we found goodness. This is where the kingdom of God is. So it's not God like wanting like, I need you to all be low. You're my subjects, you know what I mean? Or whatever. But when people choose that and take that on themselves in a way that, that leads them towards gratitude, the guy goes back to praise and to thank Jesus. Like Jesus is like, oh, here we go. This is, this is the real good in the world. So when people admit their fault, when people repent, when people say they're sorry, and people ask for help, like that leads to a kind of, gratitude and a kind of receiving of mercy where these people are in touch with their real self, you know, and they can then truly praise goodness and other good things in the world. And and, and they can truly praise God in a more real way than someone who thinks of themselves as being high. And therefore that helps them praise God. Well, that's going to come up in the next chapter. So wink. Um, and so God seems to have this idea in Luke 17 that only people who aren't trying to dominate others or trying to aggrandize themselves will see God well, 
will respond to God appropriately and can join in that work. And this is what Jesus calls faith. So faith to Jesus doesn't seem to be like, oh, a checklist of all the right ideas and belief. Like for Jesus, he rewards faith when he sees it. And that's always when people are like, thank you. You didn't need to do this, but thank you. I didn't deserve this, but thank you. You know? Um, and so that's really interesting. Um, and God seems to be like, yeah, like when people say thank you and when people uh, show gratitude and when people are willing to be a little bit humble, like we can do great things there. And so maybe that's why he tells those disciples, you only need a little bit of faith. And if you were kind of happy and thankful for that, you could go out and do amazing things in the world. Kind of interesting. Um, last thing about God in this chapter um, uh, that we don't want to go over too quickly, even though we pointed out a few times earlier in Luke, uh, Jesus, you know, praises goodness in people and in places wherever he finds it. There's no boundaries for who can be good or who can't be good. There's no um, checklist of beliefs or or, 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 or or better bloodline or proper worship or something like that that Jesus uses to judge whether people are allowed to be part of, you know, this good movement in the world or not. Um, so this leper and a Samaritan is the one who receives praise for his faith in the chapter. Whereas other people who are the traditional kind of heroes of the story um, and who are even doing some good things in the book and stuff like that, don't receive that same praise. Um, and what's interesting is that um, Luke characterizes Jesus continually as praising um, Greeks, Gentiles, Samaritans, lepers, women, like, and, and he's characterizing Jesus as one who isn't bound by racial lines, uh, gender lines, stuff like that, and doesn't see the world in that way. And he's not a downer about people in general. Like he praises good things when he when people do really good things that when he meets them. Um, and uh, so in in Luke seventeen, the God we find there isn't racist. <laughs> um, and isn't uh, classist against poor people. It doesn't harbor um, uh, ill thoughts towards people who are sick or who are in need. He shows mercy on them and then praises their response when it's good and it's healthy. Um, that's the kind of God that Luke shows us in Luke 17. It's kind of interesting. Um, so second question, here we go. Lo-fi question number two, what are people like in Luke 17? So, um, the first kind of thing we get is the story with the disciples, um, where they ask for more faith. And so I think something we can see about people in Luke 17, especially particularly these, these religious guys, these guys who are following Jesus, um, they have trouble and they struggle with faith. And so they ask for more. Maybe they've already kind of keyed into, they've, they've been criticized here and there a little bit by Jesus about the amount or the, of their faith or the way that their faith comes out and how they deal with other people or they respond to Jesus. Um, you know, he's asked before, like, will I find faith here? Oh, you, if, if you only had more faith, oh, you have little faith, stuff like that. Um, and so there's some tension there. And so they ask for more. Um, and Jesus' response is, oh, you don't, you don't need much. Like the response isn't really to ask for more. The response is kind of more to go and, and do the work. Uh, and so what's interesting to kind of note here is Luke characterizes these followers of Jesus um, as being people who, when it comes to religious things, they kind of always want more. Um, it kind of commodifies their faith. Jesus, give us more faith. Um, that kind of thing. And maybe that was a, a kind of appropriate question to ask your rabbi at the time. 
Um, and it is kind of a good thing to ask for, but it, it kind of makes faith something that doesn't just kind of develop naturally out of their actions and their and the way that they're living and following Jesus. It kind of makes it a, a product, if that kind of makes sense. And they kind of just ask Jesus for more of it. And you have to kind of step back and be like, okay, if the human beings in the story are people who are like, oh God, we need more faith. I wonder where that comes from. So let's 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 be good wanderers here. Let's be good curious folks. Does it come from their anxiety? Like, oh, uh, like we've been, we, we want to have good faith, like the people Jesus praises. So we want God to be happy with us. So, so we should ask for more. And at the root of that, what is that showing about maybe the way that they view God? Um, or maybe that question comes out of like, we want to have amazing faith, God. We want to be like the heroes in the story. We want to be, you know, the Captain America of faith. You know what I mean? Like, does it come from a sense of like pride or of like maybe even like a kind of religious greed where they want to be great and to, and to be powerful in that sense. Just like, Oh, if you want real power, you don't need a lot of faith. You need to have just a little bit of it, but the power isn't to make amazing things happen. The power is to go and to serve people as best you can and not ask for a reward, which is kind of interesting. Um, so the irony that comes up in this story in Luke 17 is that human beings have a tendency to make religion and spirituality, which is built upon a system that tells them things like, uh, like a God is real and all our praise and honor and glory are supposed to go towards this God because this God is the good one in the universe and makes good things happen. Human beings have an amazing tendency to take even a religious system like that that's supposed to be all about someone else and make it all about them. <laughs> and so here the disciples are like, oh, give us more faith. We want to be the super faithful. And maybe we even see that portrayed in that leper story where 10 lepers get healed. They get an amazing gift from God and only only one of them comes back, which means that nine of them just go on and, and, and live their lives and they still get to experience the goodness that God gives them. I mean, I mean, you can't, I don't really blame them because they, they get to go back and rejoin society and stuff like that. But one goes the next step and returns to be humble and be thankful. And so maybe um, between the example of these disciples and these nine other lepers, like they've already been all given a good gift. Now it's not about getting more. It's about going and serving and doing the work. Um, but yet in Luke 17, Luke characterizes even, even the people that are closest to Jesus get that wrong sometimes. Um, whereas maybe the Samaritan leper gives us a human example of someone who does it really well where when something good happens to them, he doesn't turn around and ask for more, but responds with praise and gratitude to Jesus saying, you are great. I don't need more. I want to return something to you. Like, so whereas the disciples are like, oh, please make me great. This leper turns around and is like, oh, like I'm going to praise God. God is great. Thank you for this mercy. I'm just here at your feet. I'm just the servant. I'm just the lonely one. Kind of interesting. So we get kind of like positive and negative portrayals um, of human beings and how they can respond to, 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 to God in the story. Um, and last, what something we can learn about people. And I love um, how Luke does this a lot. Um, Luke portrays human beings in Luke 17 as being just clueless about what God is and who God is and what God is up to in the world. So the religious people, the Pharisees, the people that know the text right and left and who know the laws and who are have the time to, to, to do it right and have all the behaviors right and stuff like that. Jesus is like, oh, like, you're still looking for the kingdom of God. It's not something you're going to see if you haven't seen it already. 
you're not going to see something else that's going to show it to you. It's, it's already here. It's among you. It's, it's, it, you know, imagine neon arrow, you know, blinking and pointing. It's, ah, uh, it's right in front of you and you just don't see it. You're, you who, who, who know it better than anyone else are still clueless and missing it. And Luke just portrays human beings as like that. Like people who see Jesus so closely miss it in big ways, you know? Um, and so Jesus is like, ah, oh, it's like a, it's like lightning flashing and, and you're, you're still, some people are, are going to miss it, you know? Um, the Samaritan leper sees it. Um, but the other nine don't like there's nine dudes who like experience a miracle and don't really get it. But the Samaritan one, the outsider does and his disciples who are so close to him, like still don't fully get it yet, you know? And so, you know, Luke 17 just portrays people as that way. Some people have a worldview that's so already established and that they're going to protect so much and aren't open to seeing things differently that they're going to miss possibly huge, obvious things right in front of their nose. Um, and yet within that, we get these teachings about God being merciful, you know, maybe even towards them. And so it kind of begs this question. Um, I mean, have we ever met someone in our lives who worked so hard to avoid having anything that challenges their beliefs or their worldview being, being a real challenge or being viewed as true? Like, have you met people like that? And in the end, like, have you ever seen someone who had to like, ignore basic facts about the universe in order to protect this point of view of the world or the way that they want to live, you know, or whatever. And Jesus in this, in this chapter seems to have no time for that. He's just like, oh my gosh, you guys need to wake up and, and repent and see that you're wrong and start from the ground and then you'll get it right. And so people in Luke 17, like some of them won't be ready and will miss giant, huge cosmic events of the universe because they were just too busy buying, selling, building, eating, drinking. And even they'll miss it because they're too busy being religious, in a sense, in Luke 17. Very tricky. Um, and so why this story? Why is Luke 17 in our Bible? Why did people remember these stories about Jesus and tell them around campfires and to the point where Luke heard these stories and amongst all the stories, Luke had to pick some and, and, and cut others. And he kept these ones in the Bible. And then why have people read this and kept Luke's book around for now thousands of years and read it? Like what is it that people get out of the story that was so good or, or so real or so true that they decided that this story amongst others had to be one that people definitely had a chance to hear or to read. Um, so if we're asking the question from the point of view of there had to be a community of faith that told these stories to each other, that thought that these stories were something important enough um, that these stories are going to be the ones that were preserved because they shape their community and who they are and teach them something very true about God in a very important way. What, what about these stories might do that? Okay, so a couple of things right off the bat. Um, these stories would teach their community, I think, a kind of ethic of responsibility toward each other. So if you listen to the kitchen episode for the 16, I brought up um, that there's a certain way you can read the scriptures as being a response to or working out of, of human within human history, uh, people struggling with this question of, am I my brother's keeper? It's, it's the question that Cain has. Um, and Jesus here in these stories models for them and interacts with people in a way as to say, yes, you definitely have a constant responsibility towards each other 
in your life. So it starts off with that warning of like, you need to make sure that these little ones don't stumble. And when people mess up, it's your job to forgive always. And if you have been messing up always, then the flip side of that, there's like a a reverse modeling that that teaching gives of, do you keep messing up? You need to keep seeking forgiveness. And that's the way that you're all supposed to live together. And there's something that these people found when they read these stories of Jesus teaching them that you have, you must, you must always forgive. And you must take care of those who are low within your community. You're responsible for them. And this religion isn't about making yourself grand and increasing your faith and being a super, super faith person. It's about serving and doing the work and taking care of each other. Like that's a very different kind of model. And that would build a very different, very particular kind of community, even amongst other religious communities. Um, And I think that maybe they were captivated by that and found that interesting. Um, So number two, um, why this story? Um, This story teaches racial and radical inclusivity in their community. Um, So again, Luke constantly has these stories where he characterizes Jesus as being radically inclusive to people who are normally excluded from their communities, towards sick people, towards people of different ethnic backgrounds, towards people of of different genders and, and, and social places and stuff like that. And once again, we hear, get Jesus. There's only one hero in all of these stories in all of Luke 17. Everyone else kind of gets it wrong. There's one hero and it's a Samaritan leper. And we cannot forget that. And I wonder if the people who originally carried these stories of Luke 17 were like, there's something very important there that we need to not forget that sometimes the hero is not who we expect. It's an outsider. And so therefore, our community needs to be one where outsiders are welcomed and reached out to and served because they might be the ones that get it right. And we need as many people who get it right in our community as possible. And so um, Luke's original audience um, was this interesting mix of um, both people who were starting this new church of this, 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 in this way of Jesus, this emerging religious stream, um, was made up of both people who were from a Jewish background, like people who were people of Israel, stuff like that, as well as, as the church was growing increasingly, um, people who were from Greek backgrounds, both ethnically, religiously, stuff like that. And for Luke to be characterizing the people who are not from the mainstream within this religious tradition as people who are the heroes is a radical statement. Um, And if people accepted that story, and said, this story is going to be one who kind of we, who we center our lives around and let shape us, then that would hopefully, I think, make them a community of people who had a radical like openness to people of other faiths, towards people of other ethnic groups and stuff like that, to have and find a place within their religious community if they wanted to live the same way, like in this way of Jesus. Um, and that's interesting because it's not really the way that that was kind of the smart way to build or preserve a religion, especially while your religion was being oppressed. Um, you would think that they would kind of shelter and hunker down, but no, they were like, we need to have radical inclusivity. It's kind of interesting. Um, and kind of last, this is a, a kind of a bigger thing that I, I think, um, why did people keep these stories around these stories about faith and seeds, these stories about lepers being healed and people on the ground being lifted up and these stories and lessons about Jesus teaching this complicated teaching about the kingdom of God and the days of the son of man and stuff like that. 
One theme to come from all of that, as Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you. It would be a reminder to all these people who are this story that they are not a future-oriented community. They're a present-day-oriented community. Because of what who Jesus was and what he did and stuff like that, it's something that has the most biggest like message to tell them about how to live right now. Not we're all waiting for a future day of the future. So even Jesus in giving a complicated, unclear teaching with conflicting images and messages about the future, maybe Jesus is kind of intentionally vague there because he's like, that's not the main point in the first place. Like it's not about figuring out the future because the future is very unclear. What's important is what you do now. The kingdom of God is fully among you. There is talk about a future day of the Son of Man, you know? It just admits that something else is coming and stuff like that. But the emphasis is on the present in all of Jesus' teachings about how to live and about how to respond to him and stuff like that. And Luke continually gives us examples of how people are responding to Jesus in that moment. Not like, oh, and in the future they did this. You know what I mean? Um, and so Jesus dismisses like future hoopla and hysteria about this, about the religion and about the Messiah and about the apocalypse, you might say. And he's like, some people are going to see it and some people might not. And guess what, you guys, some people see it right now and some people don't see it right now. So f- focus on responding correctly and appropriately right now and on seeing it right now. Don't wait for something in the future. Don't run off, is what Jesus says. On that, on any day that you hear something that stirs you up, don't don't run off. Keep centered on what we're telling you to do right now and the way I'm showing you to live right now. And it's not about something. It's not about waiting for the right day to do the right thing then. It's kind of about doing the right thing now every day. But what's interesting in these stories is Luke paints a picture of their religion being not based on something that's going to happen in the future. It's not centered around that, that they're all not sitting and waiting in the way that like, you know, we see some cults and stuff like that do, or even see some Christian people doing right now. It's not about something that's going to happen in the future. What has already happened, according to Jesus, is enough to get started. The kingdom of God is already among you. And if Jesus is talking about himself, he's like, oh, well, everything you need is already happening right now to see and understand and participate in what God is doing in the world and stuff like that. So it, again, kind of alludes back to that rich man Lazarus story where the rich man is like, ah, oh, if only like someone had come back from the dead and go show my family, they would get it right. And Abraham is like, nah, they already have enough. They have Moses and the prophets, you know what I mean? And so Jesus is like, Moses and the prophets was enough. I am like a big, huge bonus. And so it's not about something that's going to happen one day. It's something that's already happening now. You know, and even when he does talk about the thing to happen one day, it's like a major cosmic event, like fire and lightning and stuff like that. Like you don't have any part in it. It's not like a, it's like a new military conquest that you need to join in and respond appropriate to and stuff like that. It's, it's how are you responding to it right now? It's not about reading signs in the sky to do the right thing when the particular big thing happens. It's about doing the right thing every day. And so in this context though, what is the right thing that people should be all about doing every day? In Luke 17, it's forgiving, serving others, not asking for more, but using what you have, taking care of poor people, and saying thank you, <laughs> and praising God appropriately. Like, that's what, that's, that's enough, according to Jesus, um, in Luke 17. Um, and that's really interesting, because 
if Luke's readers found something very important in that, that they wanted to keep these stories alive and that Luke thought it was important. So he wanted to write it down. And so if his readers kept, are like, oh, this book of Luke is great because it has this one passage in Luke 17 where it tells us not to be obsessed with prophecy or any kind of sexy, terrifying, scary, end of the world hoopla that might be going on. It's to be focused on what we're doing right now. That they then might become a community who is not obsessed with the future, but is obsessed with the present and obsessed with looking past the menial tasks of life and the sexy possibilities of the future to create a better world right now and to find the kingdom of God among them. That might shape them to be a very different kind of community because they're not sitting and waiting. They're involved right now. And they're looking for and seeking the community of God as it would pop up among them right now. That when they see it, just like Jesus does, they could celebrate it and praise it and see how they can be a part of creating it more and more. And more so, if we remember that Luke's audience were a community of of Greek but also Jewish followers of, of, of this Jesus way, who had already watched, likely had already watched or heard about the entire like nation of Israel falling, of Jerusalem being stormed by Roman guards and the temple being overturned and burned down to the point where the fires got so hot it made the stones explode. And when all the people there were wiped out, these people have already experienced enough apocalypse. And Jesus's message to them, Luke's message to them in 17 through Jesus. And when they tell the story to each other, the message that they carry to each other is we've already experienced what we thought was the end and we're still here. What do we do now? Do we wait for something else in the future? No, we're not waiting for something in the future. We have to get to work now. So let's go about the daily work of forgiving and showing charity and crossing ethnic lines and gender lines and physical lines or even health and sickness and stuff like that to go and to serve. And we don't wait for more faith to do it. We do it now. Interesting stuff. Am I right? So that's Luke 17. Um, it's good stuff. Uh, I hope you got some good stuff out of it. Next is going to be 18. Um, as we go forward in the story, it's going to start to get more and more um, tense as we get uh, as we approach and then get into the passion narrative as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Um, so I hope you come back for Luke 18. Um, a lot of Luke 18 is going to tie really closely to Luke 17 and 16. So um, it's going to be good stuff, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for those of you who... Um, who have been supportive um, and shared the podcast. That's if, if you do like what we do, that's the biggest thing you could do is um, to, to give us a review because that helps um, the, the system put the podcast automatically in front of more people. But if you could uh, share it through social media, any way you can um, tell a friend uh, the next time you're at work or church or hanging out at the bar, be like, Hey, I listen to the lo-fi lectionary. This is a goofy guy. Kevin, he says, I'm a lot. And he has a real high voice, but we, we tell, he tells a good story. Hopefully, um, that would be a huge help and would warm my heart. So thank you so much for listening. I'll see you guys in, um, soon for, uh, the kitchen episode. Take care.
Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lo-fi at kevinlester.net, and that's lo-fi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lo-fi kevin with no dash again, so at lo-fi kevin. Um, that's kind of it, so thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.